Watto and welcome to Woodhouse Keeping, a show about Woodhouse PG. We take one book and give it a long look, then move on chronologically. Welcome to the fourth episode of Woodhouse Keeping. What the magazine Good Housekeeping is to matters of home and the hearth, we hope to be for the life and works of English humorous writer Pelham Grenville Woodhouse, better known as P.G. Woodhouse, or Plum to his friends, P.G. Wodehouse to his enemies. I am Ian Coburn, a dilettante from Shropshire, and today I am joined by returning guest Alexander Rennie of the Forgotten Towns podcast to talk about the third of P.G. Woodhouse's public school novels, The Gold Bat, published by A.N.C. Black in 1904. But first, I have some corrections and clarifications. In the last episode, I wrongly said that transpontine means across the ocean and that transpontine melodrama means American melodrama. I should have known to consult my Norman Murphy Woodhouse handbook first. Transpontine here means across the bridge, and by transpontine melodrama, Woodhouse was referring to the melodramas you would get south of the River Thames. The implication being you've got a better sort of drama north of the river. I think I mentioned in the last episode I'm finding this Norman Murphy Woodhouse handbook extremely useful and it's highly recommended. Also, after our Prefect's Uncle episode, my brother suggested to me that the deathless author who played for the MCC could have been Arthur Conan Doyle, who did play for the MCC from time to time. I think that's as good a guess as any. More about Conan Doyle later. The Gold Bat was serialised in The Captain in six parts from October 1903 to March 1904, the first of his novels to be serialised there. Dedication. The novel is dedicated to that prince of slackers, Herbert Westbrook. This is the first of two dedications to Herbert Westbrook, a major figure in Woodhouse's life who he met the same year he wrote this book, 1903. I presume you've heard of Herbert Westbrook. He must have been mentioned in the uh, Sophie Radcliffe Letters Collection. He certainly is. You certainly get an impression of why this gentleman may have been referred to as the Prince of Slackers. Prince of Slackers may be a play on A Prince of Swindlers, an 1899 book of short stories by Guy Boothby, which inaugurated the gentleman thief genre. But he seems to have shared a sense of humour with Woodhouse. Yeah, they seem to have bounced off each other with their conversation, and a lot of that seems to have made its way into Woodhouse's notes and possibly even into his fiction. But Woodhouse, sorry, Westbrook is probably most important to Woodhouse's life in introducing him to the school at Emsworth. Emsworth House in Hampshire, a prep school. That is a private school for younger boys. Westbrook was either teaching there or had been teaching there, and he invited Woodhouse to stay there with him. And Woodhouse fell in love with Emsworth and found it an ideal place to work away from the hustle and bustle of London. Indeed. Indeed. And he clearly did get writing done in that environment. But I was going to say the, the contrast I picked up in trying to um, get a handle on this Westbrook character was that he doesn't seem to have shared Woodhouse's um, work ethic. Yes. <laughs> very much not. Obviously, we're, we're right at the beginning here, or very near the beginning of uh, of Woodhouse's career arc. But, you know, we know 
what he went on to do and what he continually did was churn out books. You know, he's still sticking to familiar territory within his public school stories. But as I keep pointing out, it's only a part of his output. At the same time, he's working for the Globe. He's doing his topical humour. He's doing his um, poems for the newspapers. He's in Punch. He's just on the point of getting lyrics performed on the stage. So all of which goes to uh, illustrate just how busy he kept himself. And I know it's already been discussed earlier on about his progression to first appearing in print, but I think he recognises that he's onto a good thing here, and he probably also recognises that he's far from yet being the finished article, and the way to get better as well as the way to earn a living and an increasingly good one would be to keep at it. And Westbrook, by uh, contrast, clearly has a facility in the same department. And they well, are- he was um, struck by Westbrook's charm, I think. He was a ladies' man and he was a bit of a bounder. And uh, I don't know if I want to say too much about Westbrook himself right now because he will go on to collaborate with Woodhouse on two books. Yes. And And he will be the inspiration for one of Woodhouse's major characters. So it's almost as if maybe those would be a better moment to discuss him. Yeah, but I did want to talk a bit more about Emsworth because this is the background of his life at the moment. He um, enjoyed fraternising with the boys there and playing sport with them. And he found the headmaster and proprietor, Baldwin King Hall, a very agreeable fellow too. King Hall's sister Ella would later become Woodhouse's agent and Westbrook's wife. It's been rumoured that Woodhouse was also romantically interested in her. And King Hall made him welcome to stay over at the school. After a while, though, he thought it better to rent his own house next to the school. And the house was called Threepwood. Another name well recognisable to... Elmsworth, Threepwood, these are familiar names to Woodhouse fans... And also there was a beach road nearby and a nearby village called Bosham. For those who don't know, these are all character names from the Blanding's Castle saga. So this school, Emsworth, or Emsworth House, he's clearly spending a lot of time thereabouts. But is it just somewhere he is staying? He, he is effectively living there for a while. Mm-hmm. The thing is, his parents had been living in Shropshire and he loved spending time with them there. But then they moved to Cheltenham, which he hated. So he really needed somewhere rural to to get away from it all. But even uh, if he's done, a, he's doing a bit of casual assistance, maybe with the, the boys sports or whatever. I think he helped put on plays as well. But he does have a day job or at least a morning job in London working for the Globe newspaper, which is a problem. For a while, he's commuting. He's writing his copy on the train on the way to his office. And as soon as he gets to his office, office, he says, here it is, I've written it already. But the problem is, if a train is delayed, he misses his deadline. And that happened. And his editor said, you can't do this anymore. You need to be here in the office. So he had to move back to London. Yeah. This book, however, go back. This is potentially being written 
while he's at Emsworth House or spending a certain amount of time there? I think so, because yeah. he could dedicates it to Westbrook. And at the time, Westbrook is the person he hangs about in Emsworth with. So I guess it's probably worth clarifying the difference between the school in whose milieu he's, he's writing this and the school about which he's writing. Because oh, yeah. Emsworth is... Emsworth House was for younger boys. Yeah. And he did set a novel there later. He would use his experience in Emsworth House eventually for the novel The Little Nugget. Yeah. But for the moment, he's sticking with his core audience and his core subject matter, which is public schools, which is older boys, often just about to leave school and go to university. Yeah, so I think all the all the characters, all the main characters we're dealing with in the book here are mid-teens and upwards. Whereas, of course, these boys that are, um, you know, playing their sports on his doorstep are probably 10 or 11 tops, maybe 12. So, well, whilst, as you say, he's, he's storing up this sort of thing for, for later and not just, not just the names of characters and what have you, but it's got less of a bearing on threading together the plot narrative, I would suggest for the, the gold bat. Although, of course, very familiar environment for him and some of his readers. Or, of course, as you went into detail about previous, the aspirational readers who may not have attended any such schools, but will find that school setting familiar from plenty of the other output available for them to read at the time. Yeah, it was standard for school stories to be set at these posh schools. Yes. And I mean, I apologies if I made this point previously, but you know, what's been the most successful or best-selling sequence of school sets novels for younger people to read in the last quarter of a century of say no more and how many of the readership went to boarding schools let alone schools of wizardry and witchcraft Um, yes this novel is set in a new school it's called Rykin and it's the first appearance of Rykin but by no means the last, Woodhouse would use this for two further novels and a series of short stories. Am I allowed to make a very brief diversion on the subject of pronunciation? Yes. We don't know how to this word. Now, in my mind, I saw references to... How, how do you pronounce it? Riken? Riken. I pronounce it Riken. And that's the way I've always pronounced it in my head since I read my Gut Riken when I was a kid. But I have no information as to how Woodhouse pronounced it. And I shall follow your pronunciation lead for the purposes of this show. I remember but on the, our previous recording, you called it Reekin. Because the school, the real Reekin College, is there in Shropshire, I believe. The Reekin is a hill. In Shropshire, we know you can clearly see it from Blanding's Castle because it's mentioned in one of the Blanding's novels. As we've mentioned already, Woodhouse loved Shropshire from his parents living there. So I'm quite sure it inspired the naming of this school. Yeah. And I I suppose in my mind, I thought, oh, he's changed the spelling. Yes. But I assume he's also changed the pronunciation as well. And they also, during the course of this book, they play Ripton, who 
in my mind, I probably still pronounce Repton because Reakin and Repton are two schools that when I was at school in Birmingham, we used to play these at cricket. The rugby rivalry in the book between Reakin and Ripton yeah. is Norman Murphy reckons it's based on the rival, the rugby rivalry between Malvern and Repton. That's fair enough. These ancient rivalries are a genuine concept that public school listeners will be familiar with. I suspect they may change. I was at school, it was there was always a, a slightly additional frisson about who's going to win the big match. And if you lost to some other sides, it was far less of a concern as long as you put it right and beat your big rivals. And, you know, that comes across here. I mean, a lot of people who at school might have paid precious little attention to the sporting endeavours of their peers might think, how can everybody have been so bothered about this upcoming match? But if you're at a boarding school, then you probably will have found it quite difficult to avoid. Well, all the main characters in Woodhouse's school novels, sport is the be-all and end-all of their lives, I would say. And if that isn't the case, then there's a certain suspicious and there's something wrong with them, such as with Ruthven in this book. Oh, yes. And I'm sure that's true to Woodhouse's own experience at Dulwich. Yes. Now, fortunately for Woodhouse, I suppose you could say he had a foot in both camps because the fact that he may have had literary leanings didn't preclude him from taking a keen interest in sporting matters. And so he probably kept friends on both sides of that divide. Yeah, we start at the Easter term, which would immediately follow the Christmas break. So it's still rugby rather than cricket season. And indeed, it continues to be rugby season for the rest of the book. There's no cricket in this book, despite the titular gold bat. Precisely. Something I had forgot, I have to say, having not read this for many years. And the fact that I had this as part of a collection of more than one story. Ah, that may well be the one. And therefore, in my mind, it's sort of conflated with other things in there that possibly did involve cricket. And, of course, the title works well for that compendium, if that was true. The Penguin Collection pairs it with the head of K's and the white feather. Right. And uh, certainly the head of K's has a lot of cricket in it. I haven't reread white feather in preparation for the podcast yet. But I expect that does too. So there you go. This is a, a man in his dotage looking back on things that he read about 30 years ago. Uh, and I have clearly become slightly confused. And I thought, oh, Gold bats. Well, I can, I can probably offer something about that. Yes, saying, it's um, it's all about a rugby union football. For our new listeners, if any, the previous episode Alex guested on, he was able to elucidate the finer points of cricket for me. I have no interest in cricket or rugby, so it was very useful to me. I had also forgotten that there is no actual cricket in it. 
No. Well, from your perspective, and I dare say you thought it's got some generic sporting action that is a plot device, and it may as well be uh, be rugby football as cricket because you're probably not going to be as entertained by it for its own sake as I yes. was for the cricket content in the prefect's uncle of which i think we agreed there was a lot now fortunately for me i would suggest that the volume in proportionate terms of descriptive passages of rugby is somewhat lower in this book than cricket was in the other everything here seems ultimately to contribute to the outcome of the plot to some extent there was far less picking up and dropping of random characters in act two stories that actually ended up being quite peripheral turned out to have significance after all absolutely the whereabouts of the titular gold bats are key but sometimes they lurk in the background and ultimately everything is resolved and the bits and pieces that happen along the way contribute towards that outcome. So that, in my mind, seemed a bit more structured than last time. The book starts with a rugby friendly and the point of contention is who should be the school first 15's new right wing three quarter. They have promoted the one from the second team, Rand Brown, double-barrelled name, but he has proved to be out of his depth. So the captain of the team and his friends decide to promote a player from the third team called Barry. The captain is called Trevor, and he's the main character. And as usual in these Woodhouse School stories, he has a best friend who is the wise-cracking character, in this case, Klaus. Trevor is the head boy of Donaldson's house as well. It's said of him that, like the immortal Captain Pot, Trevor was a terror to the shirker and the lubber, and the resemblance was further increased by the fact that he was a toughish lot who was little but steel and india rubber. This is a reference to The Messenger Boy, a smash hit musical comedy of the day. A terror to the scholar and the lubber. A pretty toughish lot. Fish lot, fish lot. I'm little, but I'm steel and India rubber. Well spotted. Thank you, Norman Murphy. The title, The Gold Bat, is explained in the second chapter. At Riken, the winners of the house cricket matches each receive a miniature silver bat and the captain receives a miniature gold bat. Trevor is the current holder of the gold bat, but he has lent it to an Irish boy called O'Hara, who, it turns out, has lost it. At this point, one of the regular school story tropes comes up, which is that of the poorly run house, which has a poor housemaster, who, as Woodhouse says, should retire from the profession and take up chicken farming. I'm not sure the chickens would be very happy if they got Dexter looking at them. <laughs> it's interesting that Woodhouse was already thinking about chicken farming a couple of years before Love Among the Chickens, his novel on the subject. The house in this case is Dexter's, and the boys of Dexter's are, we are told, a very lawless bunch, even at the prefect level. And O'Hara, the Irish boy, is one of the most lawless. 
We hear that the local mayor, Sir Eustace Biggs, has written to the local paper with a vilification of the Irish, which has enraged the Irish boys at Riken, O'Hara and Moriarty, and they have tarred and feathered his statue. This is a rare intrusion of politics into a yeah. Woodhouse story. Yeah, I was fascinated by that. To us, it seems it's a rare intrusion of politics into a Woodhouse story. But at the time, in the context of his career up to that point, he was not so divorced from politics in his writing because his day job was to write topical humour for a conservative daily newspaper. And he must have often had to touch on the Irish question, as it was called, because obviously it was very much alive then. So he doesn't go into any detail, I would suggest, about the political matters under discussion. But clearly there is an allusion to... The struggle for Irish independence. Yeah. And of course, you know, this was all consuming with a vast number of nationalist MPs, for example, sitting at that time in what was very much still a united parliament representing Britain and the whole of Ireland. And there are some comedic references to, you know, why do you Irish create so much trouble, etc., etc., without referencing what that trouble was. And and O'Hara sort of takes this in good spirit. But you can imagine that these matters will never have been too far away from conversation where Irish boys at an English public school might have been in long. Mm. O'Hara is quite a sympathetic character in the book, isn't he? Yeah. We're not meant to think, oh, he's that awful Irish character who wants to uh, cause havoc we don't get the impression that Woodhouse is anti-Irish in any way. No, and this is in spite of the fact that clearly he's taken umbrage with this outspoken local politician who's constantly having a go at the Irish. And, you know, they've done something about it. They've tarred and feathered a statue. And you could say that in the context of a schoolboy readership that's about as close as you'd get to um, planting a bomb some but you're absolutely right there's a really good point you make that none of that is set to turn you against the character and uh, sir eustace he's portrayed as a bit of a buffoon isn't he, he totally is Sorry to <laughs> there's no sort of lazy stereotyping along contemporary received political norms or what you might expect from the sort of publication that Woodhouse might have been writing for on topical issues elsewhere. The boys have seemingly got away with their act of vandalism, but Trevor is concerned that O'Hara may have dropped Trevor's gold bat in the vicinity. Then Klaus, the friend, tells Trevor about a secret society that used to be at the school before it was suppressed a few years previously. He compares it to the Vemgerit, which were secret courts in Westphalia in the 14th and 15th centuries, which appear in a Walter Scott novel and are mentioned in the Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, among doubtless many other references in fiction of the type Woodhouse would read. You said Conan Doyle would reappear. Yes. (laughs) Having a secret society in a school is another trope. And I've been trying to think of what it reminds me of specifically, but all I can think of is the TV show Veronica Mars and possibly the Harry Potter books. This secret society 
known as the League, clearly had caused a bit of a rumpus in living memory, but had gone into abeyance, I think. The scene is set. Yeah, the original League, we are told, was originally a benevolent vigilante justice organisation bringing retribution on known bullies at a time when bullying was running riot at Riken. But, we are told, the society was perverted and ended up pursuing private grudges and a boy almost died of pneumonia after being tied up in a bath of cold water, which is a bit dark for Woodhouse. Yes, almost, though, almost died, but you'll note, didn't. Yes, we, we might be in danger of taking a humorous book and drawing attention to all the serious bits, <laughs> uh, like anti-Irish sentiment and narrowly averted manslaughter. They are minor. Minor um, elements. Yeah. Anyway, someone's decided to revive the secret society and they've smashed up the study of a boy who, in true classic crime story style, is very unpopular, so there's no shortage of suspects. And the League have left a card behind saying, with compliments of the League, Trevor and Klaus think the less publicity the League gets, the better, so they take the calling card and hide it. Then the next morning, Trevor himself receives a letter from the league warning him to drop Barry from the Rugby First 15 or else. And that's the cliffhanger of the first instalment when it appeared in The Captain. Ah, right. Trevor stands firm, though, and sure enough, his room is smashed up in the same way as the other boys, and the same card is left behind. Aside here, Trevor's possessions include Vice Versa by F. Anstey. A body swap story that Woodhouse would later use as the basis for his novel Laughing Gas. Oh, and yes. Now that's a, that's going to be a curious episode of your podcast, but it's, um, it's quite a way off yet. Oh, that's the only book I absolutely hated when I read it. <laughs> it was recently voted um, something like it. On Twitter, they had a vote on what the best Woodhouse book was, and it was number 12 or something. So. Oh, really? So I'm interested in giving it another go to see if I misjudged it. Yeah, it, I think um, without giving anything away, it's certainly very different. <laughs> Later in this book, there's another reference to Vice Versa, or one of its main characters, Mr. Bultitude. Right. In Trevor's study, we also have the sheet music of The Rogue's March, which is handy for me because I'm always looking for references to music in these books so I can use the pieces of music mentioned uh -huh. as the uh, backing music. The person with the most obvious motive to get Barry out of the team is Rand Brown, who he displaced. Yes. But Rand Brown has an alibi for this particular outrage. Trevor and Klaus together endeavour to clean up the mess before anybody else sees it. And what's a considerable task by the sound of things. Yeah, there's ink spilled all over the floor. There's pictures are smashed. The chairs are smashed. Then O'Hara, the aforementioned Irish boy, drops in to update them on the situation of the gold bat. He still hasn't found it. And the news of how the defacing of the statue has been reported in the highly partisan local paper, who imputes the outrage to Sir Eustace's political rivals, who the yeah. paper openly calls our opponents. <laughs> The press report also claims that the police claim to be following some clues, which Klaus immediately guesses means they have found the gold bat, though I'm not sure if he really believes this or if he's just trying to wind up Trevor. He says, uh, I should escape while I could. Try Calio. 
There's no extradition there. On no petition is extradition allowed in Calayo. This is apparently a rhyme that actually used to be said of Calayo, Peru, as reported in a couple of books of the time, including The Wrecker by Robert Louis Stevenson. And it's the second Woodhouse book in a row to use the idea of a schoolboy fleeing to where extradition treaties don't hold good. It was also used in the article Work in Tales of St. Austin's. Oh, right. (laughs) Anyway, despite the clean-up job they did on the room, O'Hara can still tell something isn't right, and so they have to let him into the secret of the League, its threats, and its acts of vandalism. And they allow him to tell his friend Moriarty, but nobody else. It's quite selective, that, wasn't it, really? Well, I think Klaus takes pity on him and thinks he can't possibly keep it entirely to himself. But if he tells just his best friend, then that's a pressure valve and maybe he won't tell anyone else after that. Indeed. In order for O'Hara to discuss it with Moriarty in absolute secrecy, O'Hara and Moriarty prearrange to be thrown out of their respective mathematics classes at the same time and meet in the corridor. There's a quote here, mathematics being one of the few branches of school learning which are of any use in afterlife, which is why nobody ever dreamed of doing any work in that direction. Listeners now might have thought, we've heard a lot about Greek and Latin, but surely they learn other things. Surely it can't be all dead languages. So it may be reassuring to hear that they did indeed do mathematics. They decide to do some sleuthing to try and detect where the League meets. O'Hara at length spots someone going into the gymnasium basement, and the following afternoon he hides down there, ready to trap the person as he enters. The cliffhanger of the second magazine instalment is him grabbing an unknown person. However, this turns out to only be a boy called Renford, who, with his friend Harvey, is keeping two ferrets called Sir Nigel and Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) both Conan Doyle characters. The book is almost a long found letter to Woodhouse's friend and colleague Conan Doyle, with his novel Rodney Stone also being name-checked. And in the light of all these Doyle references, you have to wonder if the character Moriarty is named after the Sherlock Holmes villain rather than being an obvious generic Irish name. You'd be hard pushed to prove that it was total coincidence. Renford and Harvey are keeping the ferrets for the purposes of hunting rabbits though they have so far failed to shoot any of the rabbits that the ferrets have flushed out. Rather amusing, that, wasn't it? That when it was put to them what the outcome would be if they actually shot a rabbit, they had not thought about the possibility that they'd actually have a dead rabbit on their hands to deal with. So, yes, clearly something to pass the time. And like one or two of the other activities in the book, the suggestion is that the fact that it's illicit and requires stealth and deception to achieve its ends is is far more important to these boys and what they're doing than any uh, practical benefits thereof. O'Hara and Moriarty are disappointed at the results of their stakeout, but it turns out the reason for their lack of success was the false assumption that the meetings must happen before lockup. Whereas O'Hara and Moriarty, of all people, should have known that at Riken there is a time-honoured method of staying out late after lock-up. It's probably easiest to read out this passage to explain this circumstance. A good deal of latitude in that way was allowed at Riken. It was the custom to go out after the bell had sounded to visit the gymnasium. In the winter and Easter terms, the gymnasium became a sort of social club. People went there with a very small intention of doing gymnastics. 
They went to lounge about, talking to cronies, in front of the two huge stoves which warmed the place. Occasionally, as a concession to the look of the thing, they would do an easy exercise or two on the horse or parallels, but for the most part they preferred the role of spectator. Ellipsis. When you were surfeited with sightseeing, you went off to your house. And this was where the peculiar beauty of the gymnasium system came in. You went up to any master who happened to be there, there was always one at least, and observed in suave accents, Please, sir, can I have a paper? Whereupon he, taking a scrap of paper, would write upon it, J.O. Jones, or A.B. Smith, or C.D. Robinson, left gymnasium at such and such a time. And by presenting this to the menial who opened the door to you at your house, you went in rejoicing, and all was peace. Now, there was no mention on the paper of the hour at which you came to the gymnasium, only of the hour at which you left. Consequently, certain lawless spirits would range the neighbourhood after lock-up, and by putting in a quarter of an hour at the gymnasium before returning to their houses, escape comment. It's a clever, clever setup. I wonder whether it was informed by anything that Woodhouse uh, had been privy to when he was at school, but it's an invaluable plot device. It seems a more lax atmosphere than in some of the other public school novels here at Riken, but it's good for the plot as you say. Oh it is. The way it was described there made me think well clearly this is a loophole that many boys are exploiting on what seems like a daily basis. Surely the Dexters of this world, he being the slightly more fascistic housemaster alluded to earlier, you would have thought that this system would have been wound up years ago. Also, it's mentioned later on, after there's an unauthorised fight, that the school doesn't really care that much about fighting as long as it's not prefects. Again, I'm not sure if that's true in some of the other school stories. Well, we're back to that general idea of self-regulation, aren't we, that that I think we discussed previously, that um, you have the housemasters, but you have the prefects amongst whom will number the heads of houses, and as will be touched on later, a certain amount of authority will be delegated directly to these firsts amongst equals, i.e. the the senior boys, prefects and heads of houses to basically administer these things themselves and that the amount of input required from the schoolmasters unless they are of the type who wants to go sticking their nose in is is limited and it does make for more entertaining scrapes occurring Hmm. the next scene gives us some more time to look at some of the novel's minor characters But of course, in a novel that involves mystery, you know not to discount any minor characters as being suspects. Yeah. Although this is happening in Barry's study and Barry at least is above suspicion as he would hardly be conspiring to remove himself from the first team. Uh, The chapter deals with the brewing of the evening meal in Barry's study. Barry is cooking for himself and his study mate McTard and for the people in the adjoining studies, including one boy called Leather Twig, known to all his peers as Shoe Blossom. After several accidents have already happened, Shoe Blossom sends the fat from the frying pan into the fire in the fireplace and the flames go crazy. Fires in the house were not rarities. One facetious sportsman had once made a rule of setting the senior day room chimney on fire every term. He had since left by request. But fires still occurred. They try to put the fire out, but not before the housemaster, Mr Seymour, comes in and takes charge. He sends a messenger to get someone to pour water down the chimney, but it results in Mr Seymour getting a face full of sooty water when he looks into the fireplace at the wrong time. 
He bans any of the boys present from using their studies till further notice. It's a familiar theme in these novels that a scene that seems like an unrelated comic set piece has one outcome that turns out to be relevant to the wider plot. And here the plot point that will later be relevant is that these particular studies are out of bounds. Then we have the first of the rugby house matches. Seymour's play Days and Ran Brown, who plays for Seymour's, does badly and gets an angry dressing down from Milton, the head of Seymour's. Shoe Blossom, banned from his study, thinks tea in the senior day room is a mere vulgar brawl, a reference to the famous punch cartoon. Mr. de Bredoon, what is the general use of cavalry in modern warfare? Well, I suppose to give tone to what would otherwise be a mere vulgar brawl. <laughs> it's too raucous for Shoe Blossom to read any of his books, so he has the idea to creep into his study at night with a dark lantern and read through the night. Shoe Blossom is almost caught by Mr. Seymour, but manages to escape unseen, and in turn he spots another nighttime marauder, a white figure that he initially, with his guilty conscience, mistakes for a ghost. But it later turns out to be a member of the League up to no good. Yes. Speaking of the League, the cliffhanger of this third instalment is that Trevor gets a note from them warning him that they have got the gold bat and therefore they have circumstantial evidence of his involvement in the defacing of the statue. There's also a reminder, the observation that he has still not dropped Barry from the first 15. Still standing firm on that point in yes. the place of provocation from the League. And he will continue to stand firm. Yeah. Although he's worried that if the worst comes to the worst and his enemy does present the gold back to the authorities, it will be O'Hara and not him who suffers. Which, and this is a plot point I don't really understand, to be honest, because surely O'Hara is only going to get in trouble if, if Trevor himself names O'Hara. Yes. And he wouldn't do that, surely, sneaking being the worst thing in the whole code of schoolboys. Precisely. So... The gold back had been lent merely for amusement purposes. So O'Hara, in the official annals of the ownership or current custodianship of the gold back, is nowhere implicated. But it's possible a listener who had paid more attention than either of us is screaming at their device saying, you fools, this is why O'Hara would get in trouble. I dare say that listener can write in to you. Please do. I'll give the address at the end of the episode. There's a quote here. As the philosopher said of falling off a ladder, it is not the falling that matters, it is the sudden stopping at the other end. That's a lovely piece. <laughs> and by which he means it's not the being expelled that is so particularly objectionable, it is the sudden homecoming. He's worried of what O'Hara's family will say if he's expelled. However, despite his concerns for O'Hara, there is no question of giving in to the demands of Rand Brown, I mean the mystery correspondent from the League. Then he goes over to talk to Milton, the head of Seymour's. Trevor, we mentioned, is the head of Donaldson's, and Milton is the head of Seymour's, and they both have a say in the rugby team. They confer, although... It ultimately, it's Trevor's decision. He's the captain, but he likes to confer with these two other boys, Milton and Allardyce. And uh, they all agree with him that Barry should be in the team and not Rand Brown. But also, 
being heads of their houses, they need to set the dates for the rugby house matches. And that's what he's doing now. He's going over to Milton's to arrange the Donaldson's Seymour's house game. Yeah, I think like a lot of other stories, there are far more boys involved than there need to be for the purposes of moving the plot forward. But, you know, a school's got hundreds of boys in, so that's not unrealistic. So there's a lot of names there that in the context of what is not essentially a very long book, I did not take careful notes about exactly how each one of them fitted in. The previous episode, as you know, was a collection of short stories and if he'd chosen to use this plot in a short story you wouldn't get all these extra characters he'd have it pared down but because this is a novel and he has to keep the interest moving you get little extra incidents a little variety of instances and for that you need a larger cast of characters precisely so when you get to this point where they're trying to calculate a list of potential suspects, I suppose, for who... And sorry, I'm probably jumping ahead there. But yeah, you're bit... jumping ahead because we should mention before anything else that he's <laughs> gone over to Milton's study and it's been trashed. It's He's the third victim of the League, yeah. so-called. And we remember that Milton, a couple of chapters ago, publicly roasted Rand Brown for his poor performance in the House rugby match. In an earlier scene, much had been made of Milton's huge collection of photographs of actors and variety stars, which Trevor thinks is a stupid waste of money. And that was uh, obviously mentioned as a way of setting up this scene later on, because now the collection has been totally destroyed and Milton is devastated. And the different celebrities are brought up throughout the chapter. The humour in the scene is... Trevor's trying to stick to the points, trying to stick to practical matters, but Milton keeps remembering another great photograph he's lost and says, oh, my uh, Henry Irving. Yes, good early 20th century references. And the last mentioned in the chapter, Seymour Hicks, was an actor, writer, producer that Woodhouse knew, or he certainly knew him later, because Woodhouse became a sort of protege of his and... Hicks used Woodhouse's lyrics in his 1906 show, The Beauty of Bath. But you're right. All of those references are very, um, well, they're, they're very amusing in the context because, as you say, we're trying to move the plot forward. And this is not unusual for Woodhouse. The plot is being moved forward. Um, yeah, not at the expense of entertainment. <laughs> so, yes, he's not going to shy away from the opportunity for a bit of casual wordplay or gentle humour on utterly irrelevant points. And it's not just one or two mentions. It's, you know, it's throughout this whole passage, isn't it? So, There's yeah. also a reference, to, well, and a comment, I should say, on the buttoned up nature of public school life. It must have been a lunatic dick old man. When Milton called Trevor Dick, it was a sign that he was moved. When he called him Dick Old Man, it gave evidence of an internal upheaval without parallel. <laughs> That's the only time I think we learn what Trevor's first name is. That's right. The uh, The listeners to this podcast should not think that 
public schools were um, frequented by a great deal of chaps called Trevor and Barry in the way you might bump into them at your local public house. These are very much the surnames. And Trevor is Richard Trevor and known in this intimate circumstance because of the emotional weight of what's going on as Dick, but only on that one occasion. Yes. Meanwhile, Shoe Blossom realises that the culprit of this latest attack must have been the marauder in white that he saw at night. He's trying to tell Barry about it without incriminating himself, so he makes an A-B case of it, as he says, a term he read in a Robert Louis Stevenson novel, meaning person A saw person B. Barry offers to tell Milton, again making an A and B case of it, so shoe blossom is not implicated this whole section is quite funny and here's my favorite bit well the chap who told me was coming out of his study at about one o'clock in the morning what the juice was he doing that for because he wanted to go back to bed about time too milton accepts this story but the only real clue is that the marauder is a big person about the size of their housemaster. this again points to rand brown who is now Milton's main suspect. Then it's the Seymour's Donaldson's house match in which Barry is injured, which means he can't play for the school team in their next match, the big match against their arch rivals, Ripton. So by default, Rand Brown, boo hiss, gets his place in the rugby first 15 and Trevor and Milton agree there is really no one else suitable for that position. Milton reveals to Trevor his suspicion that it was Rand Brown who wrecked his study and Trevor agrees he is a likely league member but he repeats that he couldn't have been the boy that wrecked Trevor's study because he has an alibi. But they both believe that all this is beside the point in terms of who should play in the match. The best team available should play, end of story. When Barry was available, then he was the best player. Now he's not available, Rand Brown is the best player. And any suspicions are to be set aside. Trevor goes over to Rand Brown to tell him he's in the team, but also while he's at it, he demands to search Rand Brown's study. He finds nothing. Then we're on to the big match, Riken against Ripton. Ripton take the lead in the first half, Rand Brown being a weak link as feared. Then after the halftime break, Klaus immediately scores a try. The man on the touchline brightened up wonderfully and began to try and calculate the probable score by the end of the game on the assumption that as a try had been scored in the first two minutes, ten would be scored in the first twenty, and so on. I've certainly done that as a sports fan, and generally speaking, you come a cropper if you base too much of it upon mathematics. In the match, it appears that Woodhouse makes a bloomer in terms of his summary of the match being won by Riken by a goal and a try to a try, because in the preceding passages, he has clearly described a situation where the scores were level at a try each, and then in the closing moments, Riken score a further try, which they convert which to my eye means that they won by two tries and a goal to a try. 
I have not spent a lot of time researching historic rules of rugby <laughs> union football, but I don't think it really depends on that. It is just basic counting. That's good if anyone's listening, thinking, I thought I was the only person that ever noticed that. <laughs> At last, vindication. Now, they've won this match. It's mentioned earlier that the Riken rugby season includes... They play lots of other schools once, but they play Ripton twice. And it's extremely unusual for them to win both games against Ripton. And now they have jubilation reigns across the school. And there's a tradition that after the second Ripton match, win or lose, uh, members of that first team who have not already been given their colours are awarded their colours. Can you explain yes. what colours are, Alexander? Uh, okay, so... This is a system which still persists in a lot of school and other academic setups, whereby various boys in this situation would play for a team over the course of a season. Some might be regulars, some might come in for the odd game, and those who are deemed to be integral, I suppose, to the team will be awarded colours. We've come into the end of another instalment here. And the big cliffhanger is that someone walks into Seymour's house to stop the row they're making because they're celebrating and to let Barry know that he has been awarded his school colours. And the significance of this is he did not play in the match. Rand Brown played in the match. So according to custom, Rand Brown would be awarded his colours. But as we know, he performed dismally. So that's not going to happen. And Barry, who was only prevented from playing due to injury, is unexpectedly getting his colours instead. This is a big deal. Yeah, Barry was clearly pretty fed up. His injury meant that he couldn't play in this big game. Obviously, everybody's now celebrating a game that was won in spite of his non-participation. And suddenly, this is turned on its head by this very unexpected decision. But the significance for the reader, I suppose, is that this is a massive snub to Ram Brown. And the reader probably assumes that Ram Brown is behind these attacks, the so-called league attacks. And you wonder, what will he do now that he's been uh, given such an insult, whose study is going to be smashed up now? Yeah, precisely. We, the reader, have been left to think of Rand Brown as, you know, a jolly, unsympathetic character. We haven't touched on all of the scenes with Rand Brown, but he's uh, got a bullying side to him, doesn't he? He's not very nice to smaller boys. We're quite sympathetic to Barry, having rightly been awarded his colours and Rand Brown snubbed in this. Yeah, conversely, Barry is presented as an all-around good guy throughout But I hear you cry. Whatever happened to O'Hara and Moriarty and their uh, efforts to trace the league meetings? Well, they've been busy boxing because they're going to compete at Aldershot. That's that's right. uh, You you doubtless uh, thought when you you looked at the the sports covered in this book, rugby and boxing, you thought, ah, we need to get Alex in to talk about this. 
Well, yes. neither of these sports are ones I certainly have ever excelled at or know a great deal about. But yes, there's a boxing sideline going on. Uh, I remember finding it slightly odd, probably when I was reading some of these stories 30 or rather more years ago. I'm thinking boxing at school, you know, because my school certainly didn't do boxing. On looking into it, it seems that boxing was common in British schools until the 1960s and it has never officially been banned. We mentioned earlier the gymnasium people go to hang about going late, but O'Hara and Moriarty do actually use the gymnasium for its proper purpose. They do their sparring in there. Anyway. There you go. You see, Woodhouse maybe lazily saying, who's going to be good at boxing? Clearly the Irish boys. But he has boxing in a lot of his other school stories and oh, yeah. English yes, boys yeah. are good at it too. O'Hara and Moriarty do another stakeout to try and catch the league in the act of conspiring. But instead, they find some boys smoking without conspiring. Yeah. Now, it so happens a master... Dexter. Dexter the one whose house is a shambles. The housemaster, Dexter, is suspicious of O'Hara and Moriarty, and he's watched them sneak into the vault of the gymnasium, and he's uh, followed them in, and he doesn't see them, but he does see the smoking party. So this is another group of boys who have come in, and of course, we, from the viewpoint of O'Hara and Moriarty, from a darkened corner or whatever, they are thinking, ah, here come the league, you know, to to plot. And, of course, these other boys whom they can't see sit in silence uh, and have a smoke. And at this point, Dexter sort of comes in to try and flush them out. And even in 1904, smoking in school was looked down upon. So these boys are clearly for it and they're shepherded out of the place. And we don't see who they are at this point. It later will become significant when we later find out who they were. But for now, Dexter still knows that O'Hara and Moriarty are in there somewhere. So he waits for them to come out. They do not come out. He shuts the door on them and says, I'll be waiting outside. You'll have to come out sometime. And by an extreme piece of good fortune, (laughs) O'Hara remembers there's a trap door leading up to whatever's above them at the time. Yes, it was sort of master's corridor or something, wasn't it, in there? But it was yeah, it was yeah. so terribly convenient that it he was. Sort of recalled this thing. So they managed to get up through the trapdoor because fortunately there's a bolt on the lower side and the bolt on the upper side is not locked, so they can let themselves out there. They can bolt it from the top and make good their escape. And uh, leaving Dexter baffled. And then they go to the gymnasium as usual, do some sparring, get their slip of paper and achieve their fake alibi. However, the cracking of the smoking ring means that this vault is finally going to be locked at night. And this presents a problem for the ferret keepers. They're disgusted (laughs) to find that their ferrets are trapped in there. There's a, yeah, it's a rather distressing passage where the boy comes down to uh, to feed the ferrets, can't gain access, and has visions of these starving ferrets mm. left to waste away. Yeah, fortunately, O'Hara is already in their confidence, so they tell him, and fortunately, he knows about the trapdoor, so he promises to go and get them and uh, hide them behind the fives court. 
The next step forward in the investigation to the League is that Milton has thought of looking at the postmark on the letters, finding that it's a hamlet called Chesterton. He goes there, he questions the locals. All he gets is that the boy has fair hair. Meanwhile, the mayor has come to complain to the head. Well, he suspects a boy of being behind the tarring and feathering because someone has told him there was a gold bat found at the foot of it. And this is another place where the plot is a little bit hazy to me. Are we to infer that Ran Brown, sorry, whoever is behind the league, told him about this (laughs) under an assumed name? He keeps talking about this person called Samuel Wapshot. Yes, I can't shed any more light on that. Yeah, maybe Samuel Wapshot is a real person and he saw the bat before the league got hold of it. Anyway, the mayor, it turns out, is a nouveau riche type who would drop his H's if he wasn't very careful. And to overcompensate, he talks in this absurdly highfalutin way. I've made a yeah. note of some of the words he uses. Synopsis, diminutive, avers, coeval. And so he leads the head to mull this over. The head, of course, has no option but to assume that Trevor is mixed up in this somehow because he will know that it was Trevor that had the gold bat. And it so happens that Trevor is coming into his office now to read him his weekly essay. Apparently all the prefects have to write an essay every week and read it to the head, which must cut into their rugby time. But he would have thought so, and I also... Thought it would have cut into the head's time, to be honest. I can't really imagine that he'd find that a massively edifying experience. Yeah. Anyway, different schools, different approaches. Yeah, well, we don't know if this is something that actually happened in schools or if it's just a convenient plot device. <laughs> Trevor reads him this essay, then the head tells him not to go because he has something to say to him, and Trevor is already fearing the worst. And maybe we're fearing the worst too, but the head does not accuse him of statue vandalising. He instead brings up the issue of smoking. He tells him that (laughs) a gang of smokers have been discovered and he now is calling on all the heads of house to have a real crackdown and search all of the boys' studies and publicly cane anyone found with tobacco. And he tells him that two people in his house, Donaldson's, were involved in the smoking ring. So Trevor goes off to start on this unpleasant duty and it's mentioned that he himself is virulently anti-smoking because he thinks it harms the rugby performance. Precisely. Which which is what is of the most great importance, of course. They've generally got their priorities wrong, I think. So he's he's happy enough to enter into this task, isn't he, I think? uh... No, He'd be glad to wipe out smoking, but he doesn't like the unpopularity it will bring him personally or the fact that he would have to accuse people he personally knows and likes. And uh, Klaus has to come with him as backup. And Klaus, conversely, relishes. It's almost unaccountable the glee he takes in the situation. But there's also this interesting editorial comment from Woodhouse himself or the narrator, if you prefer. To smoke at school is to insult the divine weed. When you are obliged to smoke in odd corners, fearing every moment that you will be discovered, the whole meaning, poetry, romance of a pipe vanishes and you become like those lost beings who smoke when they are running to catch trains. I agree entirely. But the very second study they search is Ruth Van 
And he was introduced way back in chapter two or three, but it was quite an inconsequential chapter, so I didn't mention it. But here it turns out that he is the missing link in the conspiracy because immediately they start searching. He refuses to cooperate. And Klaus, who hated Ruthven from the start, grabs a poker and smashes open the lock of the drawer. And there is the gold bat. Yes. And thus concludes the fifth instalment. Ah, so that was things paused in the publication, was it? Uh, I also wanted to mention the Ten Commandments of the Golden Age of Detective Stories, which weren't codified till 1929, many years after this. But number one is the criminal must be mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to know. And Ruthven certainly fits that bill, even though we didn't mention him in our summary. When Ruthven was introduced earlier, it was made clear that he and Trevor were friends, but it was not explained why. It was the main point of contention between Trevor and Klaus that Klaus couldn't understand why anyone would want to hang out with Ruthven. And now Klaus is somewhat vindicated because it turns out Ruthven is a snake in the grass. Indeed. But there are complexities within that, aren't there? Yes. Well, what he confesses to at first is that he and Rand Brown are the League, no one else. The story is the previous year a boy was expelled for gambling and Ruthven had been the one who ratted on him. But Ruthven was able to keep his anonymity so nobody knew he'd been the sneak. And we mentioned before... Mm. In the code of schoolboys, sneaking is the worst thing you could possibly do. So it was vital for Ruthven that nobody should know that he exposed this gambling person. Until somehow Rand Brown found out the secret and threatened to expose him. So it's a sheer case of blackmail. So that's how Rand Brown was able to bend Ruthven to his will and get him to do the things that... Yeah. Uh, because as you mentioned earlier, Rand Brown is in Seymour's house and Ruthven is in Donaldson's. So between them, they can cover bases. And, yeah. uh, so Rand Brown had his alibis earlier yes. on, but of course he had a stooge doing things for him. Yeah. Then Klaus asks Trevor what he's going to do to punish him and, he's, and uh, Trevor says nothing. And then it turns out that Ruthven was one of the boys smoking in the smoking party. And so he's going to be expelled anyway. And this is very curious because yeah. Trevor says to Klaus, oh, didn't I tell you? No, he didn't. We would have remembered. And we don't remember yeah. the Ted telling Trevor either. And if Trevor had known that Ruthven was going to be expelled for smoking anyway, I think that scene would have played out very differently. Because yeah. he's treating it as if it's a formality. He doesn't really expect to find anything in Ruthven's study so that's no. peculiar i feel like there's there's little flaws in this story we've already mentioned some of them and here's another one and and again you know we've made the point before it's it's not altogether surprising that churning this stuff out for a magazine there were little odd bits that maybe weren't as well polished as they might have been in later novels but for them to then just be left in in that format for the book, you know, strikes mm. me kind of... Well, I, sp- I suppose it's possible that they had told him later who the two boys were. Uh, but there's another aspect to this, which we're going to come to a little later as well. So yes, just to pause to talk about, now we know the whole truth about the League. Is it a massive anticlimax? 
or is it refreshing that he doesn't try to make it more glamorous and uh, swashbuckling and uh, ridiculously over the top? I'm not sure I sat there thinking this is refreshing. Um, (laughs) I just thought, yeah, we've proved that it was Rand Brown. We've been led to believe that it probably was him. And all of the crimes are really petty. There's nothing with any real sense of mystery. It's all straight cause and effect. Somebody offends Rand Brown, somebody's room gets smashed up. So they've smashed up the rooms of people that we like. He's ended up being a bit bad at rugby. (laughs) He's now going to get his comeuppance. It it probably didn't warrant massively more dramatic treatment, I suppose. (laughs) No, but if you come in at the start and then you hear the story of the league being revived and how big a deal it was before and all of the ramifications when it was a anti-bullying vigilante group and it almost seems yeah. like that is the more interesting story oh it is yes you know you should have been here five years ago and to hear that it's to be revived you get your hopes up you think oh this is the story of the revival of the league so Ruthen's getting expelled anyway but what of rand brown what is trevor going to do about rand brown well he's going to fight him what else but the trouble is well Rand Brown's bigger than him. He didn't have to go down this route, though, did he? He didn't have to challenge Rand Brown to a fight. So I don't quite know why he's picked something that he's ill-placed to defeat Rand Brown at. There seems to be some sort of code of honour thing going on here, that the only thing that will suffice. It's the uh, whole golden age of duelling still having traces into the 20th century, isn't it? Somebody personally affronts you you have to demand satisfaction yes well that's what it sounded like the very next school story the head of case there's a very similar situation there's a grudge and the only way of dealing with it is a private match but it's interesting because in that one skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want spoilers for the head of case the challenger is in a good position to beat up the challengee So it's less of a dilemma, really. It's almost too neat. It's like having a a classic square-jawed hero deal with all his problems with two fists, almost as if that was part of his moral character, the fact that he could, you know, name me some classic heroes. Tintin, James Bond, Sexton Blake. Yes. And then they can acquit themselves physically when required. Yeah, it's it's part of the package. Moral authority, yeah. Yeah, it's trial by combat almost. It's almost the medieval idea of whoever wins in a fight has God on his side. Indeed. Whereas here, we have Trevor selecting this means when he is uh, ill-equipped. Yeah, the the consensus seems to be he's going to have his bottom handed to him. Uh, so, well, it is what it is, and we we move on with that assumption, uh, yeah. as often happens in Woodhouse. Yeah. There was only one possible course, and the reader is just taken along with that. And well, yeah, I would say the reader at this thing thinks, oh, it's extremely unlikely that he's going to beat him, so he's going to come up against the odds. There's going to be some massive upset here, and to lead us on this train of thought. Trevor goes to O'Hara for boxing lessons. Yeah. Because pretty much uh, O'Hara owes him at this point. So 
And O'Hara is obviously the number one boxer in the school. And O'Hara is horrified to hear that he's planning on taking on Rand Brown. And so Trevor has to explain what the quarrel is, which means O'Hara realises that, in fact, it's he that should really have the quarrel with Rand Brown, because Woodhouse has convinced us that it's O'Hara that would ultimately suffer in this scenario of the... Yes, coming device of him actually being associated, obviously, with the the original crime. So O'Hara, who decides to get in first with his own retribution and arranges his own fight with Rand Brown at the Fives Court. And we have a witness to this event. Renford of the Ferrets happens to be there feeding the Ferrets. So that's where all that plot line ties in. Renford was there and he tells his friend Harvey all about it. We see this time and again in Woodhouse that he chooses to relate a big scene in a book secondhand through the perspective of one of his characters. This is rather neatly done, I felt. And also, you know, the other fellow to whom he's relating the story rather wished that he'd got up early to feed the ferrets that morning because uh, such excitement was uh, something beyond his wildest expectations being uh, somehow involved in the in the fight between two senior boys. As the timekeeper, isn't he? He, he ends up being the timekeeper, Renfrew. Yes, um, it's fortunate he's yeah. there, not just for the point of view of being a good narrator for the chapter. O'Hara wins, of course, and Rand Brown has to uh, spend some time recuperating and he is unavailable for any further fights. So <laughs> Trevor is a little mortified to find that he won't get to face his nemesis himself. Yes. But here we get yet another piece of information that has been withheld from us, that Rand Brown was also in the smoking party that got caught by Mr. Dexter. So he is also going to be expelled anyway. And I guess Trevor didn't know that because Rand Brown is in another house, so not under Trevor's purview. That was believable, I think. I want to make a parallel between the Pot Hunters here. In the Pot Hunters, there's a mystery... And there's various boys trying to scope about and figure it out. But in the end, it's just solved by the authorities. It's just a professional detective comes in and off screen sorts it all out. And there you go. Finds the culprit. And similarly here, if none of this detective work had happened, if they hadn't gone to the post office uh, to trace the letters, if they hadn't... The point is a master... Dexter saw the smoking party. Due to the smoking party, both members of the league are getting expelled anyway. So it's almost the antithesis of the platonic idea of a children's story where you feel like the children are in charge, the children have the power, the children have the agency. Woodhouse is saying, yeah, up to a point, but really the grown-ups are in charge, aren't they? Yes. Yes, the ultimate outcome has been determined by matters that were entirely out with the scope of our main protagonist's control and justice is meted out by masters. And so the bit part off the record justice that is meted out is nice, but ultimately inconsequential. It's violence within um, codified acceptability, Mm. Queensbury rules in this case. Um, with a proper timekeeper. And uh, I have to say, if there was uh, physical violence uh, 
meted out off the record at any school I remember. It generally was not quite so organised and uh, rather more ad hoc. Although I was cheering on as the reader from the virtual ringside, hoping and in fact knowing that Rand Brown would very much get his come up. So we're almost wrapped up, but there is something still hanging. We know that Trevor didn't do it, but does the head know that Trevor didn't deface the statue? The final chapter is another instance, I think, of a rather too convenient occurrence, (laughs) neatly wrapping things up. It turns out that the mayor, Eustace Briggs, is none too popular with other people, apart from the Irish schoolboys. And a copycat act of violence has taken place and the statue has been um, vandalised all over again, but this time openly by a raging band of his political adversaries. And the newspaper, the Reichen Patriot, has reported on it again. And it's just now accepted fact in the community that this group of ruffians must have been responsible first time around as well. So nobody's suspecting any schoolboys anymore. As from O'Hara's point of view, the perfect crime. Not only Indeed. has he got away with it, he's actually roused the population. And to, um, yes, one he's hopes, inspired them to show their feelings. One hopes that ultimately Sir Eustace may get his comeuppance rather more directly, possibly from the electorate. Oh, the the mayor does still think that a schoolboy might have been responsible because he's still talking to the head about the gold bat, at which point the head asks Trevor to produce the gold bat. He does so, and he assures the headmaster with perfect truth that it has been in a drawer for the majority of the term. Yes. That's, again, the whole uh, thing you get in Woodhouse of schoolboys can break the rules, but they cannot lie. Precisely. No untruth passes his lips in saying that because, of course, it has been in a drawer, Mm. be it not necessarily his own. Sir Eustace agrees. It's a very sensible place to keep it, my boy. And Trevor agreed with him with the mental reservation that it rather depended on whom the drawer belonged to. Which I thought was quite an entertaining last couple of sentences for the book. Yeah. Anything further to say about this book? It is a book not without occasional flaws, but that does not subtract from the enjoyability. Alexander has started his own podcast called... um, Forgotten Towns. Forgotten Towns. Of course, I was was inspired by exposure to uh, involvement in a podcast earlier in the year to go and do something of my own. Although I have to admit, it's a rather different sort of show. A... Very lightweight UK travelogue focusing on the sort of towns that don't usually get a great deal of exposure. And the great advantage of it is that each episode is only five minutes long. And therefore, if you don't like it, you won't have wasted much of your time. Very unlike this podcast. (laughs) I don't think my slightly offbeat prattlings deserve much more than five minutes, so I kept it to that. But um, do search for Forgotten Towns at your favourite podcast provider. I would like to thank the league behind madameulalee.net and the British Musical Theatre Supplement of the Gilbert and Sullivan Archive. 
I would also like to thank the authors, living or deceased, of my expanding shelf of Woodhouse reference materials, Norman Murphy, Robert McCram, Richard Usborne, Sophie Ratcliffe, Francis Donaldson and Paul Kent. Please like, subscribe, rate and review as applicable. You can get in touch with me at woodhousekeeping at gmail.com and you can find me on Facebook under Woodhousekeeping and on the site of Weeping and Gnashing of Teeth. I'm at Monty Podkin. Thank you very much, Alexander Rennie. Thank you, Ian. I'm famous Captain Pot. Tin Pot, Tin Pot. A terror to the scholar and the lava. A pretty tough fish lot. Fish lot, fish lot. I'm little but I'm steel and india rubber. I run an ocean tramp that's dirty, also damp, and shakes her rivets out when she's in motion. But I will back my boat with anything afloat. To race from point to point across the ocean. Ocean. Left my home and I left my job. Went and joined the army. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have been so balmy. Poor old soldier, poor old soldier. If I knew then what I know now, wouldn't have been so balmy.